Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Chapter 32 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. Chapter 32 The Vigil. When Mr. Black came into Shelby, he came alone. He was anxious to get back, anxious to face his enemies if he had any, anxious to see Deborah and explain. Miss Weeks and Ruther followed on more slowly. This was better for them, and better for him, and better, too, for Deborah, who must hear his story without the distraction of her daughter's presence. It was dark when he stepped onto the platform, and darker still when he rang the bell of Judge Ostrander's house. But it was not late, and his agitation had but few minutes in which to grow, before the gate swung wide, and he felt her hand in his. She was expecting him. He had telegraphed the hour at which he would arrive, and also went to look for Ruther. Consequently, there was no necessity for preliminaries, and he could ask at once for the judge, and whether he was strong enough to bear disappointment. Deborah's answer was certainly disconcerting. "'I've not seen him. He admits nobody. When I enter the library, he retreats to his bedroom. I have not even been allowed to hand him his letters.' I put them on his tray when I carry in his meals. He has received letters, then? Unimportant ones, yes. None from Oliver. Oh, no! A pause. Deborah! Another pause. The echo of that name so uttered was too sweet in her ear for her to cut it short by too hasty a reply. When she did speak, it was humbly, or should I say, wistfully. Yes? Mr. Black, I am afraid he never will hear from Oliver. The boy gave us a slip in the most remarkable manner. I will tell you when we get inside. She led him up the walk. She moved slowly, and he felt the influence of her discouragement. But once in the lighted parlor, she turned upon him the face he knew best, the mother face. Did Ruther see him? she asked. Then... He told her the whole story. When she had heard him through, she looked about the room they were in, with the lingering, abstracted gaze he hardly understood, till he saw it fall with an indescribable aspect of sorrow upon a picture which had lately been found and rehung upon the wall. It was a portrait of Oliver's mother. "'I am disappointed,' she murmured in bitter reflection to herself. I did not expect Oliver to clear himself, but I did expect him to face his accusers, if only for his father's sake. 
what am I to say now to the judge? Nothing tonight. In the morning we will talk the whole subject over. I must first explain myself to Andrews and, if possible, learn his intentions. Then I shall know better what to advise. Did the officer you met on your return from Tempest Lodge follow you to Shelby? I have not seen him. That is bad. He followed Oliver. It was to be expected. Oliver is in Canada? Undoubtedly. Which means delay, then extradition. It's that fellow Flanagan who has brought this upon us. The wretch knows something which forbids us to hope. Alas, yes. And a silence followed during which such entire stillness rested upon the house that a similar thought rose in both minds. Could it be that under this same roof, and only separated from them by a partition, there brooded another human being helplessly awaiting a message which would never come and listening, but how vainly for the step and voice for which he hungered, though they were the prelude to further shame and the signal for coming punishment? So strong was this thought in both their minds that the shadow deepened upon both faces as though a presence had passed between them, and when Mr. Black rose, as he very soon did, it was with an evident dread of leaving her alone with this thought. They were lingering yet in the hall, the good night faltering on their lips, when suddenly their eyes flashed together in mutual question, and Deborah bent her ear towards the street. An automobile was slowing up, stopping, stopping before the gates. Deborah turned and looked at Mr. Black. Was it the police? No, for the automobile was starting up again. It was going. Whoever had come had come to stay. With eyes still on those of Mr. Black, whose face showed a sudden change, she threw her hand behind her and felt wildly about for the doorknob. She had just grasped it when the bell rang. Never had it sounded so shrill and penetrating. Never had it rung quite such a summons through the desolate house. Recoiling, she made a motion of entreaty. Go, she whispered. Open. I cannot. Quickly he obeyed. She heard him pass out and down the walk and through the first gate. Then there came a silence, followed by the opening of the second gate. Then... A sound like smothered greetings, followed by quickly advancing steps and a voice she knew. How is my father? Is he well? I cannot enter till I know. It was Oliver, come from some distant station or from some other line which he had believed unwatched. Tumultuous as her thoughts were, she dared not indulge in them for a moment or give way to gratitude or any other emotion. There were words to be said, words which must be uttered on the instant and with as much imperiousness as his own. Throwing the door wide, she called down the steps. Yes, he is well. Come in, Mr. Ostrander. And you too, Mr. Black. Instructions haven't given me by the judge, which I must deliver at once. He expects you, Oliver, she went on as the two men stepped in. But not knowing when... He bade me say to you immediately upon your entrance, and I am happy to be able to do this in Mr. Black's presence, that, much as he would like to be on hand to greet you, he cannot see you tonight. 
you may wish to go to him. But you must restrain this wish, nor are you to talk, though he does not forbid you to listen. If you do not know what has happened here, Mr. Black will tell you, but for tonight at least, and up to a certain hour tomorrow, you are to keep your own counsel. When certain persons whose names he has given me can be gotten together in this house, he will join you, giving you your first meeting in the presence of others. Afterwards, he will see you alone. If these plans distress you, if you find the delay hard, I am to say that it is even harder for him than it can be for you. But circumstances compel him to act thus, and he expects you to understand and be patient. Mr. Black, assure Mr. Ostrander that I am not likely to overstate the judge's commands, or to add to or detract from them in the least particular, that I am simply the judge's mouthpiece. You may believe that, Mr. Ostrander. Young Ostrander bowed. I have no doubt of the fact, he assured her, with an unsuccessful effort to keep his trouble out of his voice. But as my father allows me some explanation, I shall be very glad to hear what has happened here to occasion my imperative recall. Do you not read the papers, Mr. Ostrander? I have not looked at one since I started upon my return. Mr. Black glanced at Deborah, who was slipping away. Then he made a move towards the parlor. If you will come in and sit down, Mr. Ostrander, I'll tell you what you have every right to know. But when they found themselves alone together, Oliver's manner altered. One moment, said he, before Mr. Black could speak. I should like to ask you first of all if Miss Scoville is better. When I left you both so suddenly at Tempest Lodge, she was not well. I, She is quite recovered, Mr. Ostrander. "'And is here?' "'Not yet. I came back quickly, like yourself.' Involuntarily, their glances met in a question which perhaps neither desired to have answered. Then Oliver remarked quite simply, "'My haste seemed warranted by my father's message. Five minutes, one minute even, is of great importance when you have but fifteen in which to catch a train. And by such a route—' "'You know my route.' <laughs> A short laugh escaped him. I feared the delay, possibly the interference. But why discuss these unimportant matters? I succeeded in my efforts. I am here, at my father's command, unattended, and, as I believe, without the knowledge of anyone but yourself and Mrs. Scoville. But your reason for these hasty summons, that is what I am ready now to hear. And he sat down but in such a way as to throw his face very much into the shadow. This was a welcome circumstance to the lawyer. His task promised to be hard enough at the best. Black Knight had not offered too dark a screen between him and the man thus suddenly called upon to face suspicions, the very shadow of which is enough to destroy a life. The hardy lawyer shrunk from uttering the words which would make the gulf imaginatively opening between them a real, if not impassable one. Something about the young man appealed to him, something apart from his relationship to the judge, something inherent in himself. Perhaps it was the misery he betrayed. Perhaps it was the memory of Reuther's faith in him 
and how that faith must suffer when she saw him next. Instantaneous reflections, but epic-making in a mind like his. Alison Black had never hesitated before in the face of any duty, and it robbed him of confidence. But he gave no proof of this in voice or manner. As pacing the floor in alternate approach and retreat, he finally addressed the motionless figure he could no longer ignore. "'You want to know what has happened here, if you mean lately. I shall have to explain that anything which has lately occurred to distress your father or make your presence here desirable has its birth in events which date back to days when this was your home and the bond between yourself and father the usual and natural one.' silence in that shadowy corner. But this the speaker had expected, and must have exacted even if Oliver had shown the least intention of speaking. A man was killed here in those old days, pardon me if I am too abrupt, and another man was executed for this crime. You were a boy, but you must remember. Again he paused but no more in expectation of or desire for an answer than before. One must breathe between the blows he inflicts, even if one is a lawyer. That was twelve years ago, not so long a time as has elapsed since you met a waif of the streets and chastised him for some petty annoyance. But both events, the great and the little, have been well remembered here in Shelby, and when Mrs. Scoville came amongst us a month or so ago, with her late but substantial proofs of her husband's innocence in the matter of Etheridge's death, there came to her aid a man, who not only remembered the beating he had received as a child, but certain facts which led him to denounce by name the party destined to bear at this late day the onus of the crime heretofore ascribed to Scoville. That name he wrote on bridges and walls. And one day, when your father left the courthouse, a mob followed him, shouting loud words which I will not repeat, but which you must understand were such as must be met and answered when the man so assailed is Judge Ostrander. Have I said enough? If so, raise your hand, and I will desist for tonight. But no movement took place in the shadow cast by Oliver's figure on the wall, before which Mr. Black had paused, and presently a voice was heard from where he sat, saying, "'You are too merciful. I do not want generalities but the naked truth. What did the men shout?' "'You have asked for a fact, and that I feel free to give you,' they shouted." Where is Oliver, your guilty son, Oliver? You saved him at a poor man's expense, but we'll have him yet. You asked me for the words, Mr. Ostrander. Yes. The pause was long, but the yes came at last. Then another silence, and then this peremptory demand. But we cannot stop here, Mr. Black. If I am to meet my father's wishes tomorrow, I must know the ground upon which I stand. What evidence lies back of these shouts? If you are my friend, and you have shown yourself to be such, you will tell me the whole story, 
I shall say nothing more. Mr. Black was not walking now. He was standing stock still, and in the shadow also, and with the space and the double shadow between them, Ellison Black told Oliver Ostrander why the people had shouted, We will have him yet. When he had quite finished, he came into the light. He did not look in the direction he had avoided from the first, but his voice had a different note as he remarked, I am your father's friend, and I have promised to be yours. You may expect me here in the morning, as I am one of the few persons your father has asked to be present at your first interview. If, after this interview, you wish anything more from me, you only have to signify it. I am blunt, but not unfeeling, Mr. Ostrander. A slight lift of the hand, visible now in the shadow, answered him, and with a silent bow he left the room. In the passageway he met Deborah. "'Leave him to himself,' said he. "'Later, perhaps, you can do something for him.' But she found this quite impossible. Oliver would neither eat nor sleep. When the early morning light came, he was sitting there still, was his father keeping vigil also? We shall never know. End of chapter 32 The Vigil Chapter 33 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. Chapter 33 The Curtain Lifted Ten o'clock! and one of the five listed to be present had arrived. The rector of the church, which the Ostranders had formerly attended, he was ushered into the parlor by Deborah, where he found himself received not by the judge in whose name he had been invited, but by Mr. Black, the lawyer, who tendered him a simple good morning and pointed out a chair. There was another person in the room, a young man who stood in one of the windows, gazing abstractedly out at the line of gloomy fence rising between him and the street. He had not turned at the rector's approach, and the latter had failed to recognize him. And so, with each new arrival, he neither turned nor moved at anyone's entrance, but left it to Mr. Black to do the honors and make the best of a situation, difficult, if not inexplicable, to all of them. Nor could it be seen that any of these men, city officials, prominent citizens, and old friends, recognized his figure or suspected his identity. Beyond a passing glance's way, they betrayed neither curiosity nor interest, being probably sufficiently occupied in accounting for their own presence in the home of their once revered and now greatly maligned compeer. Judge Ostrander, attacked through his son, was about to say or do something which each and every one of them secretly thought had better be left unsaid or undone. Yet none showed any disposition to leave the place, and when, after a short, uneasy pause during which all attempts at conversation failed, they heard a slow and weighty step approaching through the hall, the suspense was such that no one but Mr. Black noticed the quick whirl with which Oliver turned himself about 
nor the look of mortal anguish with which he awaited the opening of the door and his father's entrance among them. No one noticed, I say, until simultaneously with the appearance of Judge Ostrander on the threshold, a loud cry swept through the room of, Don't! Don't! And the man they had barely noticed flashed by them all and fell at the judge's feet with a smothered repetition of his appeal. Don't, father, don't! Then each man knew why he had been summoned there, and knowing, gazed earnestly at these two faces. Twelve years of unappeased longing, of smothered love, rising above doubts, persisting in spite of doubts, were concentrated into that one instant of mutual recognition. The eye of the father was upon that of the son, and that of the son upon that of the father, and for them, at least in this first instant of reunion, the years were forgotten, and sin, sorrow, and oncoming doom effaced from their mutual consciousness. Then the tide of life flowed back into the present, and the judge, motioning to his son to rise, observed very distinctly, don't is an ambiguous word, my son, and on your lips, at this juncture, may mislead those to whom I have called here to hear the truth from us and the truth only. You have heard what happened here a few days ago, how a long-guarded, long-suppressed suspicion, so guarded and so suppressed, that I had no intimation of its existence even found vent at a moment of public indignation, and I heard you, you, Oliver Ostrander, accused to my face of having in some boyish fit of rage struck down the man for whose death another has long since paid the penalty. This you have already been told. Yes. The word cut sharply through the silence. But the fire with which the young man rose and faced them all showed him at his best. But surely no person present believes it. No one can who knows you, and the principles in which I have been raised. This fellow, whom I beat as a boy, has waited long to start this damnable report. Surely he will get no hearing from unprejudiced and intelligent men. The police have listened to him. Mr. Andrews, who is one of the gentlemen present, has heard his story, and— you see that he stands here silent, my son. And that is not all. Mrs. Scoville, who has loved you like a mother, longs to believe in your innocence, and cannot. A low cry from the hall. It died away unheeded. And Mr. Black, her husband's counsel, continued the father, in the firm low tones of one who for many long days and nights had schooled himself for the duty of this hour, shares her feeling. He has tried not to, but he does. They have found evidences. You know them, proofs which might not have amounted to much, had it not been for the one mischievous fact which has undermined public confidence and given point to these attacks. I refer to the life we have led and the barriers we have ourselves raised against our mutual intercourse. These have undone us. To the question, why these barriers, I can find no answer, but the one which ends this struggle. Succumbing myself, I ask you to do so also, 
Out of the past comes a voice, the voice of Algernon Etheridge, demanding vengeance for his untimely end. It will not be gainsaid, not satisfied with the toll we have both paid in these years of suffering and repression. Unmindful of the hermit's life I have led, and of the heart disappointments you have borne, its cry for punishment remains insistent. Gentlemen, hush, Oliver, it is for me to cry don't now. John Scoville was a guilty man, a murderer and a thief, but he did not wield the stick which killed Algernon Etheridge. Another hand raised that. No, do not look at the boy. He is innocent. Look here. Look here. And with one awful gesture, he stood still, while horror rose like a wave and engulfed the room, choking back breath and speech from every living soul there, and making a silence more awful than any sound, or so they all felt, till his voice rose again, and they heard, You have trusted to appearances, you must trust now to my word. I am the guilty man, not Scoville, and not Oliver. Though Oliver may have been in the ravine that night, and even handled the bludgeon I found at my feet in the recesses of Dark Hollow. Then consternation spoke, and muttered cries were heard of, Madness! It is not we who are needed here, but a physician! And dominating all, the ringing shout, You cannot save me, so father. I hated Etheridge, and I slew him. Gentlemen, he prayed in his agony, coming close into their midst, do not be misled for a moment by a father's devotion. His lifted head, his flashing eye, drew every look. Honor confronted them in a countenance from which all reserve had melted away. No guilt showed there. He stood among them, a heroic figure, slowly and with a dread which no man might measure. The glances which had just devoured his young, but virile countenance passed to that of the father. They did not leave it again. Son, with what tenderness he spoke, but with what a ring of desolation. I understand your effort and appreciate it, but it is a useless one. You cannot deceive these friends of ours, men who have known my life. If you were in the ravine that night, so was I. If you handled John Scoville's stick, so did I, and after you. Let us not struggle for the execration of mankind. Let it fall where it rightfully belongs. It can bring no sting keener than that to which my breast has long been subject, or, and here his tones sank, in a last recognition of all he was losing forever. If there is suffering in a once proud man, flinging from him the last rag of respect with which he sought to cover the hideous nakedness of an unsuspected crime. It is lost in the joy of doing justice to the son who would take advantage of circumstances to assume his father's guilt. But Oliver, with a fire which nothing could damp, spoke up again. Gentlemen, will you see my father so degrade himself? He has dwelt so continually upon the knowledge which separated us a dozen years ago that he no longer can discriminate between the guilty and the innocent. 
Would he have sat in court? Would he have uttered sentences? Would he have kept his seat upon the bench for all these years, if he had borne within his breast this secret of personal guilt? No. It is not in human nature to play such a part. I was guilty, and I fled. Let the act speak for itself. The respect due my father must not be taken from him. Confession and counter-confession. What were they to think? Allison Black, aghast at this dread dilemma, ran over in his mind all that had led him to accept Oliver's guilt as proven, and then, in immediate opposition to it, the details of that old trial and the judge's consequent life, and, voicing the helpless confusion of the others, observed with forced firmness, we have heard much of oliver's wanderings in the ravine on that fatal night but nothing of yours judge ostrander it is not enough for you to say that you were there you must prove it the proof is in my succumbing to the shock of hearing oliver's name associated with this crime had he been guilty had our separation come through his crime and not through my own i should have been prepared for such a contingency and not overwhelmed by it and were you not prepared no before god the gesture accompanying this oath was a grand one convincing in its fervor its majesty and power but facts are stubborn things and while most of those present were still thrilling under the effect of this oath the dry voice of District Attorney Andrews was heard for the first time in these words. Why, then, did you, on the night of Bella's death, stop on your way across the bridge to look back upon Dark Hollow, and cry in the bitterest tones which escape human lips, Oliver, Oliver, Oliver? You were heard to speak this name, Judge Ostrander, he hastily put in as the miserable father raised his hand in ineffectual protest. A man was lurking in the darkness behind you, who both saw and heard you. He may not be the most prepossessing of witnesses, but we cannot discredit his story. Mr. Andrews, you have no children. To the man who has, I make my last appeal. Mr. Renfrew, you know the human heart both as a father and a pastor do you find anything unnatural in a guilty soul bemoaning its loss rather than its sin in the spot which recalled both to his overburdened spirit no the word came sharply and it sounded decisive but the ones which followed from mr andrews were no less so that is not enough we want evidence actual evidence that you are not playing the part your son ascribes to you the judge's eyes glared then suddenly and incomprehensibly softened till the quick fear that his mind as well as his memory had gone astray vanished in a feeling none of them could have characterized but which gave to them all an expression of awe i have such evidence announced the judge come turning he stepped into the hall oliver with bended head and a discouraged mean quickly followed ellenson black and the others 
casting startled and inquiring looks at each other, brought up the rear. Deborah Scoville was nowhere to be seen. At the door of his own room, the judge paused, and with his hand on the curtain, remarked with unexpected composure, You have all wondered, and others with you, why, for the last ten years, I have kept the gates of my house shut against every comer. I am going to show you. And with no further word or look, scarcely even giving attention to Oliver's anguished presence, he led them into the study, and from there on to that inner door known and talked of through the town as the door of mystery. This he slowly opened with the key he took from his pocket. Then, pausing with the knob in his hand, he said, In the years which are past, but two persons beside myself have crossed this threshold, and these only under my eye. Its secret was for my own breast. Judge what my remorse hath been. Judge the power of my own secret self-condemnation by what you see here. And entering, he reached up and pulled aside the carpet he had strung up over one end of the room, disclosing amid a number of loosened boards the barred cell of a condemned convict. This was my bed, gentlemen, till a stranger coming into my home made such an acknowledgment of my sin impossible. End of chapter 33 The Curtain Lifted Chapter 34 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. Chapter 24 Dark Hollow Later, when the boards he had loosened in anticipation of this hour were all removed, they came upon a packet of closely written words hidden in the framework of the bed. It read as follows. Whosoever lays hands on this MS will already be acquainted with my crime. If you would also know its cause and the full story of my hypocrisy, let him read these lines, written, as it were, with my heart's blood. I loved Algernon Etheridge. I shall never have a dear friend. His odd ways, his lank, possibly ungainly figure crowned by a head of scholarly refinement, his amiability when pleased, his irascibility when crossed, formed a character attractive to me from its very contradictions, and after my wife's death, and before my son Oliver reached a companionable age, it was in my intercourse with this man I found my most solid satisfaction. Yet we often quarreled. His dogmatism frequently ran counter to my views, and, being myself a man of quick and violent temper, Hard words sometimes pass between us, to be forgotten the next minute in a handshake or some other token of mutual esteem. These dissensions, if such they could be called, never took place except in the privacy of his study or mine. We thought too much of each other to display our differences of opinion abroad, or even in the presence of Oliver, and however heated our arguments or whatever our topic we invariably parted friends, till one fateful night. Oh, God, that years of repentance 
self-hatred and secret immolation can never undo the deed of an infuriated moment. Eternity may console, but it can never make me innocent of the blood of my heart's brother. We had had our usual wordy disagreement over some petty subject, in which he was no near wrong, nor I any nearer right than we had been many times before. But for some reason I found it harder to pardon him. Perhaps some purely physical cause lay back of this. Perhaps a nervous irritation incident upon a decision then pending in regard to all of his future heightened my feelings and made me less reasonable than usual. The cause does not matter. The result does. For the first time in our long acquaintance, I let Algernon Etheridge leave me without any attempt at conciliation. If only I had halted there, if at the sight of my empty study I had not conceived the mad notion of waylaying him at the bridge for the handshake I missed, I might have been a happy man now in Oliver, but why dwell upon these might-have-beens? What happened was this. Disturbed in mind, and finding myself alone in the house, Oliver having evidently gone out while we two were disputing, I decided to follow out the impulse I have mentioned. Leaving by the rear, I went down the lane to the path which serves as a shortcut to the bridge. That I did this unseen by anybody is not so strange when you consider the hour, and how the only person then living in the lane was, in all probability, in her kitchen. It would have been better for me, little as I might have recognized it at the time, had she been where she could have witnessed both my going and coming and faced me with the fact. John Scoville, in his statement, says that after giving up his search for his little girl, he wandered up the ravine before taking the path back, which led him through Dark Hollow. This was false, as well as the story he told of leaving his stick by the chestnut tree in the gully at foot of Ostrander Lane, for I was on the spot, and I know the route by which he reached Dark Hollow, and also through whose agency the stick came to be there. Read, and learn with what tricks the devil beguiles us men. I was descending this path, heavily shadowed, as you know, by a skirting of closely growing trees and bushes, when just where it dips into the hollow, I heard the sound of a hasty foot come crashing up through the underbrush from the ravine and cross the path ahead of me. A turn in the path prevented me from seeing the man himself, but as you will perceive, and as I perceived later, when circumstances recalled it to my mind, I had no need to see him to know who it was or with what intent he took this method of escape from the ravine into the fields leading to the highway. Scoville's stick spoke for him, the stick which I presently tripped over and mechanically picked up, without a thought of the desperate use to which I was destined to put it. Etheridge was coming. I could hear his whistle on Factory Road. There was no mistaking it. It was an unusually shrill one, and had always been a cause of irritation to me, but at this moment it was more. It roused every antagonistic impulse within me. He whistled like a galliard, after a parting which had dissatisfied me to such an extent that I had come all this distance to ask his pardon and see his old smile again. 
Afterwards, long afterwards, I was able to give another interpretation to his show of apparent self-satisfaction, but then I saw nothing but the contrast it offered to my own tender regrets, and my blood began to boil and my temper rise to such a point that recrimination took the place of apology, when in another moment we came together in the open space between the end of the bridge and Dark Hollow. He was in no better mood than myself to encounter insult, and what had been a simple difference between us flamed into a quarrel which reached its culmination when he mentioned Oliver's name with a taunt, which the boy, for all his obstinate clinging to his journalistic idea, did not deserve, nor in my own temper I drew back into the hollow. He followed me. I tried to speak. He took the word out of my mouth. This may have been with the intent of quelling my anger, but the tone was rasping, and noting this, and not his words. My hand tightened insensibly about the stick which the devil, or John Scoville, had put in my hand. Did he see this, or was he prompted by some old memory of boyish quarrels that he should give utterance to that quick, sharp laugh of scorn? I shall never know. But ere the sound had ceased, the stick was whirling over my head. There came a crash, and he fell. My friend! My friend! Next moment the earth seemed too narrow, the heavens too contracted for my misery. That he was dead, that my blow had killed him. I never doubted for an instant. I knew it, as we know the face of doom when once it has risen upon us. Never, never again, with this lump of clay, which a few minutes before had filled the hollow with shrillest whistling, breathe, or think, or speak. He was dead, 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 and I, what was I? The name which no man hears unmoved, no amount of repetition makes easy to the tongue, or welcome to the ear. The name which I had heard launched in full forensic eloquence so many times in accusation against the wretches I had hardly regarded as being in the same human class as myself, rang in my ear as though intoned from the very mouth of hell. I could not escape it. I should never be able to escape it again, though I was standing in a familiar scene, a scene I had known and frequented from childhood. I felt myself as isolated from my past, and as completely set apart from my fellows as a shipwrecked mariner tossed to precarious foothold on his wave-dashed rock. I forgot that other criminals existed. In that one awful moment, I was in my own eyes the only blot upon the universe, the sole inhabitant of the new world into which I had plunged the world of crime, the world upon which I had sat in judgment before I knew what broke the spell. A noise? No, I heard no noise. The sense of some presence near, if not intrusive? God knows. All I can say is that, drawn by some other will than my own, I found my glance traveling up the opposing bluff till at its top framed between the ragged wall and the towering chimney of Spencer's Folly, I saw the presence I had dreaded, the witness who was to undo me. It was a woman, 
a woman with a little child in hand. I did not see her face, for she was just on the point of turning away from the dizzy verge, but nothing could have been plainer than the silhouette which these two made against the flush of that early evening sky. I see it yet in troubled dreams and desperate musings. I shall see it always, for hard upon its view fear entered my soul, horrible, belittling fear, torturing me not with a sense of guilt, but of its consequences. I had slain a man to my hurt, I, a judge, just off the bench, and soon, possibly before I should see Oliver again, I should be branded from end to end of the town with that name which had made such havoc in my mind when I first saw Algernon Etheridge lying stark before me. I longed to cry out, to voice my despair in the spot where my sin had found me out, but my throat had closed, and the blood in my veins ceased flowing. As long as I could catch a glimpse of this woman's fluttering skirt as she retreated through the ruins, I stood there, self-convicted, above the man I had slain, staring up at that blotch of shining sky, which was as the gate of hell to me, not till the two figures had disappeared, and it was quite clear again did the instinct of self-preservation return, and with it the thought of flight. But where could I fly? No spot in the wide world was secret enough to conceal me now. I was a marked man. Better to stand my ground and take the consequences than to act the coward's part and slink away like those other men of blood I had so often sat in judgment upon. Had I but followed this impulse, had I but gone among my fellows, shown them the mark of Cain upon my forehead, and prayed, not for indulgence but punishment, what days of nine misery I should have been spared. But the horror of what lay at my feet drove me from the hollow, and drove me the wrong way. As my steps fell mechanically into the trail, down which I had come in innocence and kindly purpose only a few minutes before, a startling thought shot through my benumbed mind. The woman had shown no haste in her turning. There had been a naturalness in her movement, a dignity and a grace, which spoke of ease, not shock. What if she had not seen? What if my deed was as yet unknown? Might I not have time for—for for what? I did not stop to think. I just pressed on, saying to myself, Let Providence decide. If I meet anyone before I reach my own door, my doom is settled. If I do not, and I did not. As I turned into the lane from the ravine, I heard a sound far down the slope, but it was too distant to create apprehension, and I went calmly on forcing myself into my usual leisurely gait, if only to gain some control over my own emotions before coming under Oliver's eye. That sound I have never understood. It could not have been Scoville, since in the short time which had passed, he could not have fled from the point where I heard him last into the ravine below Ostrander Lane. But if not he, who was it? Or if it was he, and some other hand threw his stick across my path. Whose was this hand, and why have we never heard anything about it? 
it is a question which sometimes floats through my mind but i did not give it a thought then i was within sight of home and oliver's possible presence and all other dread was as nothing in comparison to what i felt at the prospect of meeting my boy's eye my boy's eye my greatest dread then and my greatest dread still in my terror of it i walked as to my doom the house which i had left empty i found empty oliver had not yet returned the absolute stillness of the rooms seemed appalling instinctively i looked up at the clock it had stopped not at the minute i did not say it was at the minute but near very near the time when from an innocent man i became a guilty one appalled at the discovery i fled to the front opening the door i looked out not a creature in sight and not a sound to be heard the road was as lonely and seemingly as forsaken as the house had time stopped here too were the world and its interests at a pause in horror of my deed for a moment i believed it then more natural sensations intervened and rejoicing at this lack of disturbance where disturbance meant discovery i stepped inside again and went and sat down in my own room my own room was it mine any longer its walls looked strange the petty objects of my daily handling unfamiliar the change in myself infected everything i saw i might have been in another man's house for all connection these things seemed to have with me or my life like one set apart on an unapproachable shore i stretched hands in vain towards all that i had known and all that had been of value to me but as the minutes passed as the hands of the clock i had hastily rewound moved slowly around the dial i began to lose this feeling hope which i had thought quite dead slowly revived nothing had happened and perhaps nothing would men had been killed before and the slayer passed unrecognized why might it not be so in my case if the woman continued to remain silent if for any reason she had not witnessed the blow or the striker who else was there to connect me with an assault committed a quarter of a mile away no one knew of the quarrel and if they did who could be so daring as to associate one of my name with an action so brutal a judge slay his friend it would take evidence of a very marked character to make even my political enemies believe that as the twilight deepened i rose from my seat and lit the gas i must not be found skulking in the dark then i began to count the ticks measuring off the hour if thirty minutes more passed without a rush from without i might hope if twenty if ten then it was five then it was ah at last the gate had clanged to they were coming i could hear steps voices a loud ring at the bell laying down the pen i had taken up mechanically i moved slowly towards the front should i light the hall gas as i went by it was a natural action and being natural would show unconcern but i feared the betrayal which my ashy face and trembling hands might make agitation after the news was to be expected but not before so i left the hall dark when i opened the door and thus decided my future for in the faces of the small crowd which blocked the doorway 
I detected nothing but commiseration, and when a voice spoke, and I heard Oliver's accents surcharged with nothing more grievous than pity, I realized that my secret was as yet unshared, and seeing that no man suspected me, I forbore to declare my guilt to any one. This sudden restoration from soundless depths into the pure air of respect and sympathy confused me, and beyond the words, killed, struck down by the bridge, I heard little, till slowly, dully, like the call of a bell issuing from a smothering mist, I caught the sound of a name, and then the words, He did it just for the watch, which hardly conveyed meaning to me. So full was I of Oliver's look and Oliver's tone, and the way his arm supported me as he chided them for their abruptness, and endeavored to lead me away. But the name, it stuck in my ear, and gradually it dawned upon my consciousness that another man had been arrested for my crime, and that the safety, the reverence, and the commiseration that were so dear to me had been bought at a price no man of honor might pay. But I was no longer a man of honor. I was a wretched criminal swaying above a gulf of infamy in which I had seen others swallowed, but had never dreamed of being engulfed myself. I never thought of letting myself go, not at this crisis, not while my heart was warm with its resurgent into the old life. And so I let pass the second opportunity for confession. Afterwards, it was too late, or seemed too late to my demoralized judgment. My first real awakening to the extraordinary horrors of my position was when I realized that circumstances were likely to force me into presiding over the trial of the man Scoville. This I felt to be beyond even my rapidly hardening conscience. I made great efforts to evade it, but they all failed. Then I feigned sickness, only to realize that my place would be taken by Judge Grosvenor, a notoriously prejudiced man. If he sat, it would go hard with the prisoner, and I wanted the prisoner acquitted. I had no grudge against John Scoville. I was grateful to him. By his own confession, he was a thief. But he was no murderer, and his bad repute had stood me in good stead. Attention had been so drawn to him by the circumstances in which the devil had entangled him that it had never even glanced my way, and now never would. Of course, I wanted to save him, and if the only help I could now give him was to sit as judge upon his case, then would I sit as judge whatever mental torture it involved. Sending for Mr. Black, I asked him point-blank whether in face of the circumstance that the victim of this murder was my best friend, he would not prefer to plead his case before Judge Grosvenor? He answered no, that he had more confidence in my equity even under these circumstances than in that of my able but headstrong colleague, and prayed me to get well. He did not say that he expected me on this very account to show even more favor towards his client than I might otherwise have done, but I am sure that he meant it, and, taking his attitude as an omen, I obeyed his injunction and was soon well enough to take my seat upon the bench. No one will expect me to enlarge upon the sufferings of that time. By some I was thought stoical, by others a prey to such grief that only my duty as judge kept me to my task. 
neither opinion was true. What men saw facing them from the bench was an automaton wound up to do so much work each day. The real Ostrander was not there, but stood, an unseen presence at the bar, undergoing trial side by side with John Scoville for a crime to make angels weep and humanity hide its head. Hypocrisy! But the days went by, and the inexorable hour drew nigh for the accused man's release or condemnation. Circumstances were against him. So was his bearing, which I alone understood. If, as all felt, it was that of a guilty man, it was so because he had been guilty in intent, if not in fact. He had meant to attack at the ridge. He had run down the ravine for that purpose, knowing my old friend's whistle and envying him his watch, or why his foolish story of having left his stick behind him at the chestnut. But the sound of my approaching steps higher up on the path had stopped him in mid-career and sent him rushing up the slope ahead of me. When he came back after a short circuit of the fields beyond, it was to find his crime forestalled and by the very weapon he had thrown into the hollow as he went scurrying by. It was the shock of this discovery, heightened by the use he made of it to secure the booty thus thrown in his way without crime, which gave him the hangdog look we all noted, that there were other reasons, that the place recalled another scene of brutality in which intention had been followed by act. I did not then know. It was sufficient to me then that my safety was secured by his own guilty consciousness and the prevarications into which it led him. Instead of owning up to the encounter he had so barely escaped, he confined himself to the simple declaration of having heard voices somewhere near the bridge, which to all who know the ravine appeared impossible under the conditions named. Yet, for all these incongruities and the failure of his counsel to produce any definite impression by the prisoner's persistent denial of having whittled the stick or even of having carried it into Dark Hollow, I expected a verdict in his favor. Indeed, I was so confident of it that I suffered less during the absence of the jury than at any other time, and when they returned, with that air of solemn decision which proclaims unanimity of mind and a ready verdict, I was so prepared for his acquittal that for the first time since the opening of the trial I felt myself a being of flesh and blood, with human sentiments and hopes, and it was guilty when I woke to a full realization of what this entailed, for I must have lost consciousness for a minute, though no one seemed to notice. The one fact staring me in the face, staring as a live thing stares, was that it would devolve upon me to pronounce the sentence, upon me, Archibald Ostrander, an automaton no longer, but a man realizing to the full his part in this miscarriage of justice. Somehow, strange as it may appear, I had thought little of this possibility previous to this moment. I found myself upon the brink of this new gulf before the dizziness of my escape from the other had fully passed. Do you wonder that I recoiled, sought to gain time, put off delivering the sentence from day to day? I had sinned, sinned irredeemably, but there are depths of infamy beyond which a man cannot go. 
I had reached that point. Chaos confronted me, and in contemplation of it, I fell ill. What saved me? A new discovery, and the loving sympathy of my son, Oliver. One night, a momentous one to me, he came to my room, and closing the door behind him, stood with his back to it, contemplating me in a way that startled me. What had happened? What lay behind this new and penetrating look, this anxious and yet persistent manner? I dared not think. I dared not yield to the terror which must follow thought. Terror blanches a cheek, and my cheek must never blanch under anybody's scrutiny. Never, never, so long as I lived. Father, the tone quieted me, for I knew from his gentleness that he was hesitating to speak more on his own account than on mine. You are not looking well. This thing worries you. I hate to see you like this. Is it just the loss of your old friend, or, or— He faltered, not knowing how to proceed. There was nothing strange in this. There could not have been much encouragement in my expression. I was holding on to myself with too much convulsive a grasp. Sometimes I think— he recommenced, that you don't feel quite sure of this man Scoville's guilt. Is that so? Tell me, father. I did not know what to make of him. There was no shrinking from me, no conscious or unconscious accusation in voice or look, but there was a desire to know, and a certain latent resolve behind it all that marked the line between obedient boyhood and thinking, determining man. With all my dread, a dread so great, I felt the first grasp of age upon my heartstrings at that moment. I recognized no other course than to meet this inquiry of his with the truth, that is, with just so much of the truth as was needed. No more, not one jot more. I therefore answered, and with a show of self-possession at which I now wonder, You are not far from right, Oliver. I have had moments of doubt. The evidence, as you must have noticed, is purely circumstantial. But a jury has convicted him. Yes. On the evidence you mention? Yes. What evidence would satisfy you? What would you consider a conclusive proof of guilt? I told him in the set phrases of my profession. Then he declared as I finished, you may rest easy as to this man's right to receive a sentence of death. I could not trust my ears. I know from personal observation, he proceeded, approaching me with a firm step, that he is not only capable of the crime for which he has been convicted, but that he has actually committed one under similar circumstances and possibly for the same end and he told me the story of that night of storm and bloodshed, a story which will be found lying near this, in my alcove of shame and contrition. It had an overwhelming effect upon me. I had been very near death. Suicide must have ended the struggle in which I was engaged, had not this knowledge of actual and unpunished crime come to ease my conscience. John Scoville was worthy of death, and being so, 
should receive the full reward of his deed. I need hesitate no longer. That night I slept. But there came a night when I did not. After the penalty had been paid, and to most men's eyes that episode was over, I turned the first page of that volume of slow retribution, which is the doom of the man who sins from impulse, and has the recoil of his own nature to face relentlessly to the end of his days. Scoville was in his grave. I was alive. Scoville had shot a man for his money. I had struck a man down in my wrath. Scoville's widow and little child must face a cold and unsympathetic world with small means and disgrace rising like a wall between them and social sympathy if not between them and the actual means of living. Oliver's future faced him untouched. No shadow lay across his path to hinder his happiness or to mar his chances. The results were unequal. I began to see them so, and feel the gnawing of that deathless worm whose ravages lay waste the breast, while hand and brain fulfill their routine of work as though all were well and the foundations of life unshaken. I suffered as only cowards suffer. I held on to honor, I held on to home, I held on to Oliver, but with misery for my companion, and a self-contempt which nothing could abate. Each time I mounted the bench, I felt a tug at my arm as of a visible, restraining presence. Each time I returned to my home, and met the clear eye of Oliver beaming upon me with this ever-growing promise of future comradeship, I experienced a rebellion against my own happiness, which opened my eyes to my own nature and its inevitable demand. I must give up Oliver, or yield my honors, make a full confession, and accept whatever consequences it might bring. I am a proud man, and the latter alternative was beyond me. With each passing day, the certainty of this became more absolute and more fixed. In every man's nature there lurk possibilities of action which he only recognizes under stress. Also, impossibilities which stretch like an iron barrier between him and the excellence he craves. I had come up against such an impossibility. I could forgo pleasure, travel, social intercourse, and even the companionship of the one being in whom all my hopes centered. But I could not, of my own volition, pass from the judge's bench to the felon's cell. There I struck the immovable, the impassable. I decided in one awful night of renunciation that I would send Oliver out of my life. The next day I told him abruptly, hurting him to spare myself, that I had decided after long and mature thought to yield to his desire for journalism, and that I would start him in his career and maintain him in it for three years if he would subscribe to the following conditions. They were the hardest a loving father ever imposed upon a dutiful and loving son. First, he was to leave home immediately, within a few hours in fact. Secondly, he was to regard all relations between us as finished. We were to be strangers henceforth in every particular save that of the money obligation already mentioned. Thirdly, 
he was never to acknowledge this compact or to cast any slur upon the father whose reasons for this apparently unnatural conduct were quite disconnected with any fault of his or any desire to punish or reprove fourthly he was to pray for his father every night of his life before he slept was this last a confession had i meant it to be such if so it missed its point it awed but did not enlighten him i had to contend with his compunctions as well as with his grief and dismay it was an hour of struggle on his part and of implacable resolution on mine nothing but such hardness on my part would have served me had i faltered once he would have won me over and the tale of my sleepless nights been repeated i did not falter and when the midnight stroke rang through the house that night it separated by its peal a sin-beclouded but human past from a future arid with solitude and bereft of the one possession to retain which my sin had been hidden i was a father without a son as lonely and as desolate as though the separation between us were that of the grave i had merited and so weakly shunned and thus i lived for a year but i was not yet satisfied the toll i had paid to grief did not seem to me a sufficient punishment for a crime which entailed imprisonment if not death how could i ensure for myself the extreme punishment which my peace demanded without bringing down upon me the full consequences i refused to accept you have seen to-day how i ultimately answered this question a convict's bed a convict's isolation bella served me in this bella who knew my secret and knowing continued to love me he gathered up these rods singly and in distant places and set them up across the alcove in my room he had been a convict once himself being now in my rightful place i could sleep again but after some weeks of this fresh fears arose an accident was possible for all bella's precautions someone might gain access to this room this would mean the discovery of my secret some new method must be devised for securing me absolutely against intrusion entrance into my simple almost unguarded cottage must be made impossible a close fence should replace the pickets now surrounding it a fence with the gate having its own lock and this fence was built this should have been enough but guilt has terrors unknown to innocence one day i caught a small boy peering through an infinitesimal crack in the fence and remembering the window grilled with iron with which bella had replaced a cheerful casement in my den of punishment i realized how easily an opening might be made between the boards for the convenience of a curious eye anxious to penetrate the mystery of my seclusion and so it came about that the inner fence was put up this settled my position in the town no more visits all social life was over it was meat I was satisfied at last i can now give my whole mind to my one remaining duty i lived only while on the bench march fifth eighteen ninety eight there is a dream which comes to me often 
of vision which I often see. It is that of two broken and irregular walls standing apart against a background of roseate sky. Between these walls, the figures of a woman and child turning about to go. The bridge I never see, nor the face of the man who died for my sin. But this I see always, the gaunt ruins of Spencer's folly and the figure of a woman leading away a little child. That woman lives. I know now who she is. Her testimony was uttered before me in court and was not one to rouse my apprehensions. My crime was unwitnessed by her, and for years she has been a stranger to this town. But I have a superstitious horror of seeing her again, while believing that the day will come when I shall do so, when this occurs, when I look up and find her in my path, I shall know that my sin has found me out and that the end is near. 1909 Oh, shade of Algernon Etheridge, unforgetting and unforgiving, the woman has appeared. She stood in this room today. Verily, years are nothing with God. Added later. I thought I knew what awaited me if my hour ever came. But who can understand the ways of providence, or where their finger of retributive justice will point? It is Oliver's name, and not mine, which has become the sport of calumny. Oliver's! Could the irony of life go further? Oliver's! There is nothing against him, and such folly must soon die out. But to see doubt in Mrs. Scoville's eyes is horrible in itself and to eliminate it I may have to show her Oliver's account of that long-forgotten night of crime in Spencer's folly. It is naively written, and reveals a clean, if reticent nature. But that its effect may be unquestionable, I will insert a few lines to cover any possible misinterpretation of his manner or conduct. There is an open space, and our handwritings are always strangely alike. Only our ease differed, and I will be careful with the ease. Her confidence must be restored at all hazards. My last foolish attempt has undone me. Nothing remains now but that sacrifice of self, which should have been made twelve years ago. End of chapter 34 Dark Hollow Chapter 35 of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Doreen Marcotte. Chapter 35 Sunset. I do not wish to seem selfish, Oliver, but sit a little nearer the window where I can see you whenever I open my eyes. Twelve years is a long time to make up, and I have such a little while in which to do it. Oliver moved. The moisture sprang to his eyes as he did so. He had caught a glimpse of the face on the pillow, and the changes made in a week were very apparent. Always erect, his father had towered above them then, even in his self-abasement. But he looked now as though twenty years, instead of a few days, had passed over his stately head and bowed his incomparable figure. And not that alone. His expression was different. Had Oliver not seen him in his old likeness for that one terrible half-hour, 
he would not know these features, so sunken, yet so eloquent, with the peace of one for whom all struggle is over, and the haven of his long rest near. The heart, which had held unflinchingly to its task through every stress of self-torture, succumbed under the relief of confession, and, as he himself had said, there was but little time left him to fill his eyes and heart with the sight of this strong young man who had replaced his boy Oliver. He had hungered so for his presence, even in those days of final shrinking and dismay, and now the doubts, the dread, the inexpressible humiliation are all in the past, and there remains only this, to feast his eyes where his heart has so long feasted, and to thank God for the blessedness of a speedy going, which has taken the sword from the hand of justice, and saved Oliver the anguished sight of a father's public humiliation. Had he been able at this moment to look beyond the fences which his fear had reared, he would have seen at either gate a silent figure guarding the walk, and recalled, perhaps, the horror of other days, when at the contemplation of such a prospect, the spirit recoiled upon itself in unimaginable horror and revolt. And yet, who knows? Life passions fade when the heart is at peace, and Archibald Ostrander's heart was at peace. Why? His next words will show. Oliver, his voice was low but very distinct, never have a secret. Never hide within your bosom a thought you fear the world to know. If you've done wrong, if you have disobeyed the law, either of God or man, seek not to hide what can never be hidden, so long as God reigns or men make laws. I have suffered as few men have suffered, and kept the reason intact. Now that my wickedness is known, the whole page of my life defaced, content has come again. I am no longer a deceiver. My very worst is known. Oliver? This some minutes later. Are we alone? Quite alone, father. Mrs. Scoville is busy and Ruther. Ruther is in the room above. I can hear her light step overhead. The judge was silent. He was gazing wistfully at the wall where hung the portrait of his young wife. He was no longer in his own room, but in the cheery front parlor. This Deborah had insisted upon. There was, therefore, nothing to distract him from the contemplation I have mentioned. There are things I want to say to you, not many. You already know my story, but I do not know yours, and I cannot die till I do. What took you into the ravine that evening, Oliver, and why, having picked up the stick, did you fling it from you and fly back to the highway? For the reason I ascribed to Scoville, tell me that no cloud may remain between us. Let me know your heart as well as you now know mine. The reply brought the blood back into his fading cheek. Father, I have already explained all this to Mr. Andrews, and now I will explain it to you. I never liked Mr. Etheridge as well as you did, 
and I brooded incessantly in those days over the influence which he seemed to exert over you in regard to my future career. But I never dreamed of doing him a harm, and never supposed that I could so much as attempt any argument with him on my own behalf till that very night of infernal complications and coincidences. The cause of this change was as follows. I had gone upstairs, you remember, leaving you alone with him, as I knew you desired. How I came to be in the room above, I don't remember. But I was there, and leaning out of the window directly over the porch, when you and Mr. Etheridge came out, and stood in some final debate on the steps below. He was talking, and you were listening. And never shall I forget the effect his words and tones had upon me. I had supposed him devoted to you, and here he was addressing you tartly, and in an ungracious manner which bespoke a man very different from the one I had been taught to look upon as superior. The awe of years yielded before this display, and finding him just human like the rest of us, the courage which I had always lacked in approaching him, took instant possession of me and I determined with the boy's unreasoning impulse to subject him to a personal appeal not to add his influence to the distaste you at present felt for the career upon which I had set my heart. Nothing could have been more foolish and nothing more natural, perhaps, than the act which followed. I ran down into the ravine with the wild intention, so strangely duplicated in yourself a few minutes later, of meeting and pleading my cause with him at the bridge. But, unlike you, I took the middle of the ravine for my road, and not the secluded path at the side. It was this which determined our fate, father. For here I ran up against the chestnut tree, saw the stick, and catching it up without further thought than of the facility it offered for whittling, started with it down the ravine. Scoville was not in sight. The moment was the one when he had quit looking for Ruther and wandered away up the ravine. I have thought since that perhaps the glimpse he had got of his little one peering from the scene of his crime may have stirred even his guilty conscience and sent him off on this purposeless ramble, but however this was I did not see him or anybody else as I took my way leisurely down towards the bridge whittling at the stick and thinking of what I should say to Mr. Etheridge when I met him. And now for fate's final and most fatal touch. Nothing which came into my mind struck me quite favorably. The encounter, which seemed such a very simple matter when I first contemplated it, began to assume quite a different aspect at the moment for it approached. By the time I had come abreast of the hollow, I was tired of the whole business, and hearing his whistle, and knowing by it that he was very near, I plunged up the slope to avoid him, and hurried straight away into town. That is my story, father. If I heard your steps approaching as I plunged across the path into which I had thrown the stick in my anger at having broken the point of my night-blade upon it, I thought nothing of them then. Afterwards, I believed them to be Scoville's which may account to you for my silence about this whole matter both before and during the trial. 
I was afraid of the witness stand and of what might be elicited from me if I once got into the hands of the lawyers. My abominable reticence in regard to his former crime would be brought up against me, and I was yet too young, too shy, and uninformed to face such an ordeal of my own volition. Unhappily, I was not forced into it, and—but we will not talk of that, father. Son, a long silence had intervened. There is one thing more. When, how, did you first learn my real reason for sending you from home? I saw that my position was understood by you when our eyes first met in this room. But twelve years had passed since you left this house in ignorance of all but my unnatural attitude towards you. When, Oliver, when? That I cannot answer, father. It was just a conviction which dawned gradually upon me. Now it seems as if I had known it always, but that isn't so. A boy doesn't reason, and it took reasoning for me to, to accept. Yes, I understand, and that was your secret. Oh, Oliver, I shall never ask for your forgiveness. I am not worthy of it. I only ask that you will not let pride or any other evil passion stand in the way of the happiness I see in the future for you. I cannot take from you the shame of my crime and long deception, but spare me this final sorrow. There is nothing to part you from Ruther now. Alike unhappy in your parentage, you can start on equal terms, and love will do the rest. Say that you will marry her, Oliver, and let me see her smile before I die. Marry her? Oh, father! Will such an angel marry me? No, but such a woman might. Oliver came near and stooped over his father's bed. Father, if love and attention to my profession can make a success of the life you prize, they shall have their opportunity. The father smiled. If it fell to others to remember him as he appeared in his mysterious prime, to Oliver, it was given to recall him as he looked thin, with the light on his face and the last tear he was ever to shed glittering in his fading eye. God is good, came from the bed. Then the solemnity of death settled over the room. The soft footfalls overhead ceased. The long hush had brought the two women to the door where they stood sobbing. Oliver was on his knees beside the bed his head buried in his arms. On the face so near him there rested a ray from the westering sun, but the glitter was gone from the eye and the unrest from the heart. No more weary vigils in a room dedicated to remorse and self-punishment. No more weary circling of the house in the dark lane whose fences barred out the hurrying figure within from every eye but that of heaven. Peace for him? And for Ruth and Oliver, hope. End of chapter 35, Sunset. End of Dark Hollow by Anna Catherine Green. Sunset.
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.